Hello and welcome to Policy Pod, a new podcast series from the University of Southampton. In this series of podcasts, we'll be hearing about topical policy debates informed with evidence produced from researchers at the University of Southampton. In our first episode, we look at the development of cultural policy with a view to Southampton's new Studio 144. We gathered around a table at God's House Tower in Southampton to look at the impact of culture within Southampton, focusing on its history, past, present and future. So please sit back and enjoy. So I'm James Goff, I'm the Director for Southampton Cultural Development Trust. I have been doing that job since November 2015. I'm here to talk about uh, the work that we do in the city, the Cultural Manifesto, draw on some of my previous experience of working in the culture sector for the last 25 odd years and that's what I'm here to do. I have nothing fun to say. Nothing fun to say. Nothing okay, fun great. to say. We'll, 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 we'll come back to the fun thing in a second. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Andrew, would you like to, to go next on that regard? Yeah, I'm Andrew Pinnock, uh, and I'm a professor, rah-rah, in the University of Southampton's music department. Um, I profess musicology um, and also arts management and cultural policy, uh, and those two interests date back to my time working for the Arts Council. I worked for the Arts Council for 13 years in the 1990s. Um, I left the Arts Council uh, in order to be the first and last head of music for London Arts Board, which was a regional arts board, uh, one of ten I think, um, and at that stage I decided to, uh, to move into academia. Um, so it was Arts Council, London Arts Board, back to the Arts Council, then the University of Southampton. So I have a, an academic and a practical interest in cultural policy and I've been working with James on the development of the Southampton Cultural Manifesto, so that's why I'm here. Cool. Um, Catherine, who are you and why are you here? I'm Catherine Laws. I'm 23 years old. I graduated last summer with a first-class honours degree in English. Um, I wrote my dissertation, um, and it was called The Challenge of Marketing the Arts to a University Student Audience in Southampton. And I'm due to start my new job uh, next week, which is as events coordinator for the Gatton Trust, which is um, based at Gatton Park, uh, which is a part-owned National Trust estate. Awesome, thank you. Hi, um, clearly you're leaving the vessel last. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Satya, cabinet member for communities, culture and leisure, so councillor core. I'm born and bred Southampton. I grew up in Southampton's inner city on free school meals. I grew up thinking that the world of art and culture wasn't for people like me. And ironically, it was only until I took on this portfolio, and back then it was just leisure, um, so I was the one that really fought to put the word culture in there, that I realised that I grew up with so much culture in my life but just didn't recognise it as culture, Mm -hmm. so I've almost made it... My, my mission as a cabinet member to ensure that whoever you are from whatever background that culture is so much more than just going into an art gallery or attending a theatre production but people can feel as though they're engaging in culture irrespective of, of who they are. Um, being part of a local authority we go through many challenges but I do try my best to champion the arts and culture for a variety of reasons as best I can. Cool, nice. Um, so, the kind of loose theme that we're working on for for this conversation is around uh, cultural policy in Southampton in particular. 
Yeah. I think it would be useful to kind of have a bit of a chat around what came before, before we look at what's about to happen and then what's about to happen in the, in the near, near future. So probably best, I mean, there's been lots before. I mean, 2022 will be the 800th mayor in Southampton, so we've had a, quite a lot of history. I'm assuming we don't want to go back quite that far. But we could go back to the 1930s and the building mm-hmm. of the Civic Centre, which I think is probably a good starting yeah, point yeah. in terms of uh, one of the very first uh, buildings that was put together with the idea of the Civic, uh, so the offices for the City Council, also having a uh, the, what is now the O2 Guild Halls. That's, that's part of it. And on top of that, there's the, uh, the City Art Gallery as well. So there's this idea of the Civic also taking responsibility for leisure in some shape or form and, and being a provision for that process. So in the, in the, in the 30s, where's, where's the money coming from for this kind of thing? We're, not, we're, we're pre-Arts Council at that stage? No, we're pre-Arts Council. Uh, the Arts Council arrives uh, in 1946, that's when it get, gets its Royal Charter. Uh, prior to that, uh, the arts were funded by wealthy individuals mm-hmm. or, and um, very significantly, by local authorities. So from the middle of the 19th century through to the middle of the 20th, uh, it's local authorities who are making the cultural policy running, if you look at all the art galleries and town halls in which concerts happen um, around the country. Uh, It's down to the initiative of uh, elected members of local authorities. Local authorities took, inevitably, uh, a rather holistic view of culture. So as well as building and funding galleries and concert halls, uh, they tended to build and fund libraries, they ran schools, uh, allotments, uh, playing fields, parks like Southampton Common, uh, cemeteries. So they had a comprehensive view of what culture was from which they didn't need to cut the arts off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's with the arrival of the Arts Council in 1946 with a very specific mission uh, to fund the fine arts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we put uh, a wall around not just the arts and the rest of culture, but those bits of the arts that happen to be funded by the Arts Council and the rest of culture. Now, it was done with the very best of intentions, but we can see with the benefit of 72 years hindsight uh, that it wasn't a very good way uh, to broaden public interest in the arts by cutting them off from all the other things that people were interested in simultaneously. And that's quite interesting, unintended consequences, one of which... Um, if you look at amateur theatre, amateur theatre splits from professional theatre. So pre-1940s, uh, professional and amateur theatre almost used to work in, uh, joined together. So you'd get uh, a professional in the, in, the, in the autumn months, which were the peak season, you'd have a professional theatre company supported by local amateur actors. And then in the summer season, the amateur actors would take the lead because it's less important. Uh, and so the amateur actors would take the lead and then in the winter again. They were doing, and that would be absolutely clear emerging. And it was in the 1950s, uh, after the introduction of the Arts Council and that funding for the arts, that the amateur theatre companies head off in one direction. Mm-hmm. Um, some might uncharitably suggest, which is where some of them have retained their. Why you look at a set from an amateur theatre company, it looks like it's come from the 1950s, mm-hmm. 1960s, because mm-hmm. some of, some of that kind of ethos was carried away, uh, went with it. Sure. That 1950s, 60s ethos, uh, and the professional theatre went off in a separate direction. I think that, and that's quite an interesting splitting there of arts and culture split So the Arts Council realises early on that because its budget's finite, it's going to have to work in partnership with local authorities in order to fund an expansion uh, of arts provision. It talks from the early 50s about setting up a civic arts trusts 
that didn't happen. But uh, but for, for for decades we've had a national funding body, the Arts Council, working in very sophisticated partnership with local authorities uh, to fund stuff, build stuff. Um, what's happening now as we enter our second decade of post twenty. Um, to uh, you know, austerity is that the the deal between the arts council and local authorities is unraveling through no fault of the local authorities. The cuts that they are forced to implement, they don't want to, but they have to. So I think one of the reasons why this conversation is interestingly timed is that we're entering a moment uh, where cultural priorities have to be discussed and identified and possibly renegotiated. And that's what the manifesto is. Um, I think it'd be really helpful to hear from Satvi, who is a course a councillor, what sort of agonising decision you and your colleagues are having to make about what to stop funding. Yeah, I mean, so just to put this in context from a local authority point of view, um, obviously there's a big austerity drive um, as local authorities and Southampton isn't kind of unique in this it's, it affects everywhere around the country so as an example Southampton has had to save so I've had less funding from central government of over a hundred million in the past five years which is a huge chunk most of that money that we get is ring fenced so it's stuff that we have to do completely understandably whether that's schools children's safeguarding adult social care so the actual piece of pie that's left that you can actually make those savings from gets ever shorter so it's non-statutory things like roads and pavements nice things to have like swimming pools and museums and libraries and basically everything in my portfolio (laughs) which is always good fun if anything I see it as more of a challenge so for me these are things that local communities and local residents really value its services and provision that as a local authority it's the only place we've got left to make those hundred million pounds worth of savings so how do you sustain those services and that provision for local communities without that money and I suppose the answer, a lot of the answer has been about working with organisations and partners and local communities and getting a collective solution because as a local authority and as an arts council, we're just not in a, we're just not in a position to do that ourselves anymore. Yeah, but it does, it does kind of open up opportunities to look at this area a lot more differently. Yeah, the, the, the description that you give of the, of the 1930s and local authorities having funds available to be able to... In the land of milk and Honey, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's halcyon days in the past that were just just a bit over each. It's a different scenario now. Um, it's interesting you're saying about um, the power having to come from the community now because I did an internship in Bitten Park, close by to Southampton, over the summer and autumn months, and um, it was for a local theatre company um, who are now based in a small, very small community library. A copyright Bitten library, Un- unexpected places. Yes, unexpected They're places. absolutely amazing. <laughs> yes. Um, and I really loved it, and it, there was such a great uh, community spirit there. And I think Unexpected Places, along with SCA, another local charitable organisation, came together when Cobbett Road Library was going to be closed uh, to um, be based there to help with the running of it because the community wanted it. Yeah, um, so um, the transformation of the library service was actually something that I did as the cabinet lead two years ago very painful process Um, and actually libraries is a classic example but you can look at anything where we have to kind of look broader than what we did Um, so 
for me, cultural organisations and the arts can be looked at with working with local communities to provide and be a solution to community needs and social needs within the city. So we've got um, the John Hansard Gallery, which we work really closely with as a local authority. So they work with our youth offending team and have a really great initiative in place um, that targets our youth reoffenders. And as a result, youth reoffending has gone down in the city. Unexpected Places, a great theatre company working with a local health provider to take on a local community library is really great. Um, so I was at that point about two and a half years ago. I was told by my cabinet that we had to make half a million pounds worth of savings. We did a massive consultation and a review. We had 11 libraries, could only justify keeping six of them open. So what happens to the other five? Mm -hmm. So I suppose from a very strategic position, um, we decided collectively, rather than shutting those libraries, which has happened elsewhere in the country, we would look at different ways of running them. And that's where, yeah, yeah, which, which is where the cultural sector and the art sector, along with other sectors, can really play a role. And there's kind of something about like the, the local authority or the arts council saying, these are the things that you can do, this is what we qualify as being the right way to be able to, to spend money here, which maybe isn't what local communities want necessarily, and it's very prescriptive. So there's, a, there's something quite exciting about communities being able to shape what they believe culture is and create that. I think that's true, but I think there's a positive and a negative side to it. So you, you look at the other side, which is the you start to look at, um, what, as in the opening of Studio 144, which is that the, we haven't really kind of linked into that. So you know, we fast forward to the 1930s, about late 90, uh, beginning of the 2000s, cultural strategy gets in place for the city council, which is... Uh, the opening of the Sea City Museum, which is to re-engage the, the uh, city in its maritime history, and the opening of Studio 144. And this project is all working quite well, with a lot of uh, devolved finances coming from the uh, local development agencies and so forth. 2008 comes along, and with Lehman Brothers collapse, and that's why it's taken 10 years to get from uh, a knocking down a department store and turning it into the new uh, Studio 144 that will open. And I think that's the challenge uh, when you take away cent- that centralised point of leading that process and you devolve it out, there are real benefits to devolving to communities, but there are also real challenges in terms of devolving it out to the and business sector. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. there's been the only reason why places like Studio 144 is actually coming close to opening is because there's been significant cross-party support and we've remained committed to that project over several years. However, every time arts or culture is on the table among my cabinet or senior officers, it's constantly a battle. Mm -hmm. I am battling for to keep a museum open that is costing us money against keeping a daycare service cool. open. Yeah. Um, so it becomes an increasing challenge. So I agree with James, as in there are positives, but there are definitely negatives, and it, it does slow it down. And that's why we're having the conversation right now, I guess. It's a once-in-a-generation opportunity uh, to open up and make sense of uh, a very expensive, very attractive arts facility. Uh, but it's opening at a time when, as Satvia says, many other things that people attach great value to are closing. Um, So we need to have a conversation, that's where the manifesto comes in, that enables or allows everyone in Southampton who has views as to what Studio 144 should be for them to express those views. Because if Studio 144 doesn't do what a lot of people in Southampton are devoutly hoping it will, then the political momentum behind it 
will will dissipate. For we still haven't said what it is for the benefit of people that don't know. It's, uh, so it's two spaces. Yeah, yeah, two spaces. It's uh, it's taken over the the old site that Tyrrell and Green, which was an old department store and been in the city centre for a long time, it used to have. It's right in the at the end of a new square that's been created uh, in the city, which is the Guildhall Square. So that in itself is a new space, and it becomes the centrepiece uh, to a cultural quarter, which includes the Sea City Museum, the City Art Gallery, the Mayflower Theatre. And what you now have is this brand new space, which is a gallery which is about three times the size of uh, the gallery that used to be on the university campus, which is where the John Hansard will be in one building. And on the other building, uh, across a short walkway, is where the Nuffield Southampton Theatre will be, which is a 450-seat theatre, 120-seat studio space, uh, 100 uh, capacity uh, dance rehearsal space, and a large restaurant and bar. And then this whole building uh, sits within a whole new complex, which includes restaurants and uh, apartments as well. I think it's a broader context than just one building, and I think that's one of the one of the issues around building-based funding, which is what happens with the arts council. Is you get a lot of building-based funding, and people see that that they are the solution to what's happening. You know, I, we frequently uh, sat for uh, and I. Uh, spoken with councillors who are not happy with the capital investment that goes into those buildings and you actually have to start having the conversation about it's not the building, the building is the home for a number of companies and as Sapphire says John Hansard, not only does it work with the youth offending team and it has the reduced reduction numbers of youth offending their programme of cultural engagement with young offenders has a better and a higher rate of keeping people off on the straight and narrow than any other programme that the Police Commissioning Department is currently Absolutely. doing. So that there's a real, real instrumental value in that cultural organisation existing to be able to do that thing. And the building then becomes a home for that to happen rather than necessarily the building being anything else. Yeah. Um, but, the, but the buildings are needed, right? Yeah. The, the building needs to be there, and that, that investment needs to come from somewhere. Um, so I'm, I'm really intrigued that local authorities... And, and, and I suppose in all electoral cycles, right, it's really hard to think above the five-year horizon. So this has been kicking around and in the mix for a long time. How does that How does that work? Studio 144? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I always make a point about when Studio 144 was first being discussed, I worked out when I was 12 years old. <laughs> so even though I'll be there helping to open it by no stretch of the imagination, um, I mean, I probably pay a tiny part of such a long story and so many individuals that remain committed to it. Um, and I suppose the opening is a huge accolade to that hard work and determination, despite the odds. If I'm being brutally honest, the main reason we've been able to drive it through is by early on coming to a consensus cross-party, because Southampton is one of those places that while it's Labour-run at the moment, it has chopped and changed a lot, and it probably will in the future as well, is by setting up a cross-party working group mm-hmm. um, to ensure that everyone's in informed as much as possible, but we collectively remain as committed as possible to it as well. It has been a difficult process I mean any building work doesn't come without its challenges and Studio 144 definitely has come with its challenges and has probably cost us a lot more than we ever expected Um, so I suppose the cross-party working group has really helped but I think for a cultural offer absolutely we have to talk about the outcomes it's going to bring but you do need some infrastructure around that to hang it on Mm -hmm. otherwise Mm -hmm. it's meaningless or you won't be able to sustain it 
um, or realise its successes. And I suppose for the city, and every time it's mentioned in full council, because I definitely get a lot of questions around it, will be around city pride and creating a Southampton identity about growing the local economy. I mean, culture is the second biggest employer as a sector, second to banking and finance combined in the country. So why shouldn't Southampton play its part? But also using culture and art to address a lot of social needs and kind of it being part of the mix rather than just a nice commodity and a nice thing to have. And John Hansard Gallery, I mean, they're currently based um, on the University of Southampton campus, um, really tucked away behind the scenes in this uh, relatively small building and kind of unimpressive building. And um, I spoke to the head of marketing at John Hansard and they're really, really looking forward to kind of shedding that, that image. And, you know, they've got hopefully going to do amazing things with this new venue. And, yeah. Absolutely. It's an internationally, um, it's a space for an international gallery now rather than, yeah. uh, so it takes it, you know, it has it. To the next level, yeah. yeah, it takes it to the next level, and, and that's something, you know, uh, we can argue about the value of arts, and I'm sure Andrew and I will talk about the, the different values of arts, but I think there is something, and you can talk about an intrinsic value or uh, of having an, a building in a city uh, that people go, this, we are a city because we have an exceptional internationally recognised art gallery, we have an exceptional theatre. These are things that cities need to have to be cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if you take those things away... Um, they start to it's that, that argument about being a, a city starts to become very. Every now, every now and then, a, a heroic generation takes a decision to build a piece of infrastructure that will stand for centuries uh, and, and serve a whole range. So the uh, Southampton City Council, when they built uh, the Civic Centre and the Guildhall, didn't imagine that it would host uh, Ed Burns' appearance. Uh, comedy appearance I'm bringing my kids to uh, next month but it does it's very flexible you invest in a building and then you figure out what you're going to do to make it permanently relevant or relevant for centuries Um, so that's the that's the challenge your research Catherine is trying to figure out why students by and large or not as often as we'd like uh, don't go to see shows in the Nuffield can you tell us the answer to that killer question <laughs> well when I first yeah. started doing my research for my dissertation I did get a lot of sceptical looks because people were like oh how are you going to solve this huge problem that you know student age people don't engage with the arts really they don't, it, it's not seen as something that's innately part of the university experience you know going to a theatre production which you know for me personally as an arts enthusiast it hurts me um, and I think it was in my second year at university uh, when I did one of Andrew's modules called How the Arts Work, that I was kind of challenged to realise that many of my peers didn't share my enthusiasm for the arts and that student um, in Southampton specifically, which has an unusually rich arts offering with three world-class arts venues right on the campus, the Turner Sims Concert Hall, uh, the Nuffield Southampton Theatres and the John Hansard Gallery, um, the their kind of percentage of their student audience there is very, very low um, when they're supposedly very accessible to students. So why why is that? And I think that really um, inspired me to um, explore that issue in my dissertation. I felt, as a student myself, that I was kind of well-placed to um, try and gain insight into student attitudes um, and to gain that kind of important perspective um, to see if, 
you know, where the problem was coming from. With the with the help of uh, some of my lecturers and uh, social media, I was lucky enough to uh, survey several different groups of students from across the university, across different disciplines, and I managed to get 244 respondents to my surveys. And to give a bit of an example, my biggest survey explored student engagement with theatre specifically and uh, Nuffield Southampton theatres on campus. Um, so I compared the results of a group of English students and a group of medical students. I, I thought that was particularly interesting because the English students had upcoming trips to theatre productions, uh, some of them at Nuffield Southampton theatres. So surely if there was a group motivated to attend theatre, that this was it, you know, of, of any students. Whereas in contrast, medical students are kind of known for uh, substantial contact hours, uh, meaning they might not have the time or the desire to attend an arts event. So the, the results of the survey confirmed what the venue said, that attendance at Nuffield was poor, and it applied irrespective of degree discipline, you know, an English student, a medical student, it was poor, um, despite uh, central campus location. Um, however, student intention was actually very good even if attendance was not and um, over half of both groups of students uh, said that they were likely or very likely to attend the theatre in the future. Furthermore of the students who had visited the theatre on campus all but one stated in the survey that they were likely to go again suggesting that once students have crossed that threshold into an arts venue they will almost certainly return. Almost all of them had been to another theatre production within the year and a large percentage of them have been more than four times to a theatre production of some sort. Um, so this poses a question of, of why they weren't visiting Nuffield. And one thing that came out of the study was that the um, majority of surveyed students were first years who are notoriously busy finding their feet at university and they have to experience this deluge of um, new experiences, people reaching out to them and they just maybe there's not kind of space for that. And there are also a kind of series of uh, common misconceptions which prevent students from attending. For example, many students associate the arts, this kind of elitist connotations. So it's a really valuable piece of research. It was valuable because you were uh, able to interview a really large sample of students. Um, and, and, uh, and so the statistical um, significance of your findings is genuine. Um, the bit that sticks in my mind um, is the coolness factor. You, you, you identified a number of students, a large number of students, who regularly go to the theatre, but not in Southampton. Mm. So when they're at home, they'll go and see shows with their parents, mm. they'll behave differently. But when they, when they go to university, they're reinventing themselves as, as cooler people. who don't. Yeah. So, so the, the sense of ownership uh, that, that young people would have to have over the theatre in order to feel that they really want to be seen there with their friends, that's what's missing. And we can generalise from that I mean, students are a massively important sector of the Southampton population, or 40,000 of them, but any um, non-attending section of society that we could think of needs to be uh, encouraged to have a sense of ownership over the new venue before going to it. Yeah. questions about your research if that's okay. I find it really fascinating. Um, so, talking as a graduate from Southampton University, I am definitely one of those people that <laughs> knew about those free organisations probably didn't intend actually I know 
put my hands up. Um, I didn't intend any of them until a lot afterwards. The, the first time I went into the turn of Sims was when I was getting graduated. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, my certificate. What's really depressing <laughs> is that the venue is introduced as a graduation yeah. venue. Yeah. Um, and 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 I had lectures right next to it, um, which is quite depressing. Um, I suppose from my perspective, I, I'm imagining you defined the arts as traditional arts, um, so art galleries and theatres. Um, I suppose from my yeah so I think from my perspective it was a case of with the greatest respect those types of traditional arts is for white middle class older men and some women um, of which I am none of those um, apart from being a girl Um, so I, I thought I'd get there eventually but it just wasn't for people like me and I don't know whether from a a Southampton University perspective I know there's this idea of a us and them so partly place could have a bit of a significance so I think moving the John Hansard Gallery into the the hub of the cultural quarter hopefully should help address that issue but I do think it's slightly I'd be interested to know your opinion about whose responsibility is that I mean is it a marketing responsibility because had I known back then all the amazing things I know now that all three organisations do, not only for my city, but for the university and what they offer, I probably would have gone in there a lot sooner mm-hmm. rather than waiting for an invite because I'm the cabinet member. I thought mm-hmm. I'd rock, rock, rock along and then realise that actually there's, there's a mountain full of stuff that they do. So in your opinion, whose responsibility is it to break down those barriers? Well, I have an answer. I think it's the responsibility of the university and the students at the university and the, you know, for the university to support that. And I think, um, interestingly, I think there's something Andrew said to make me think, um, since my dissertation has been uh, published, I think, um, com- kind of comparing the fi- fine arts to something else, another kind of body, uh, the Anglican Church, which kind of could be considered to have the same negative connotations, mm. um, slightly stuffy, older people, um, this kind of thing, you know, not uncle. So I think it's really interesting, and it's really interesting your analogy that, because I think if you look at the student, and and I have to confess a vested interest having been the administrative director of the Nuffield Theatre, probably while you were doing that piece of research, actually. So, uh, so I, you know, uh, two things. The student union performing arts societies in Southampton are thriving. They are the, there's about 55 performing arts student union groups. They make their own productions, they dance, they sing, they play music, they do all these. They're absolutely thriving. So, uh, so are we talking audience here? Like, it's always, it's yeah. one thing to be creating stuff. Uh, it's, it's another thing for yeah. it to be an audience. And, and, and I'm going to start a little bit of a conversation about whether there are different points and times in our lives where we want to do stuff. And when we're students, we want to be very active. It's a very active moment in our lives. And Possibly that's about, I want to get engaged and do something in that way in a very active way. As we get older, uh, we go through, uh, possibly we want to do other things and we want to become more passive and we want to watch things and engage in that stuff. I'm not suggesting that that's a, uh, I don't think you can do an age profile and go, you know, at this age you'll be active, at this age you'll be passive. But I think there is something about being at university, this freedom, this, you know, cooking for oneself. Uh, some of these simple things, getting by by oneself and possibly acting or playing an instrument or being part of a band or a, or a group or something is part of that kind of uh, atmosphere that is generated by, by being at university. So I think we have to be careful 
that we don't kind of straight create a hierarchy yeah. of what's good cultural engagement and what's poor cultural engagement. And to be fair to ourselves, uh, we, we haven't made that mistake in, in, <laughs> in the uh, manifesto, in, in the manifesto <laughs> which, we, which we should talk about. Um, so we, we come up with, we, no, it's fine, we come up with a definition uh, of culture for the manifesto, which I can't remember, so I must read out. Very broad. It says, culture, the beliefs, interests, skills, codes of behaviour and habits of thought that people have in common. So we're not saying that culture is the same as the arts. We're imagining that the arts are a sort of a bit of culture, but not the whole of culture. And it goes on to say, it's as unpacked a bit, this definition, shared cultural commitments make a rewarding social life possible. People with a similar cultural outlook usually get along. They find it easy to talk to one another and to work together. In contrast, cooperation across cultural divides can be far harder. So there are downsides to uh, overinvestment in culture. You don't talk to people from, from different backgrounds. Now, we've come up with that definition, uh, which was quite a radical one at the time, um, in order not to exclude anyone from the conversation about what the cultural development of the city should... Somebody who goes regularly to a church or a mosque or a synagogue, uh, they, they, they've got culture, absolutely. That's an important part of that. They may not go to the theatre very often, but it's insulting and unproductive to tell them in the definition that they're not cultured. Someone who loves fishing, someone who loves gardening. Uh, you could come up with an endless list of examples of people who are highly uh, cultured. Their lives are enriched by culture, but they just don't do the little bit uh, of it that the Arts Council funds and we might think uh, our, our, our job is to connect them with. So we're throwing everything open uh, and the manifesto is designed to promote a conversation where the cultural future of the city is discussed by anyone who wants to take part in that conversation and negotiated by everyone who wants to take part in that conversation. And that's, I suppose in that broadest context, which I think is what you were saying, and I think so. To, you mentioned earlier about whether what should Studio 144 do? But I think for some people, the existence of Studio 4 just to exist as a building and to know that there's a city with a fantastic gallery in it is going to be enough for those people. There will be other people uh, where they'll go, yeah, it's really... Uh, I mean, I, was, I, was, I found it really interesting, a whole city of culture bid, nine out of ten people in Hull have engaged in some form of the, the city of culture bid. I don't know if you, if you listen to radio programmes that have happening or come from Hull recently, because a lot of the BBC's almost got been camped in Hull recording things. Whenever someone mentions the cultural, uh, the, the city of culture, whether it be Mark Steele's in town through to um, in a kitchen cabinet, um, there's a kind of cheer from everybody about the, the city of culture. I think. So... Those people, a lot of those people probably got one thing or two things, not necessarily massively engaged in the city of culture. But there's a sense of a pride for it. And I think that's the same sense that you want from Studio More for And I think where the, the challenge is, is when people want to engage in those publicly invested organisations and they find barriers to it, that's something that we should be looking to unpack. And, and, and yeah, and I think our job is to provide the infrastructure and then the support to engage in it. But looking at the wider definition of culture, not to go too much off script, but... Um, so as a classic example, a few years back, um, Channel 4 wanted to do the second series of Benefit Street and call it Immigration Street, and they chose Derby Road in Southampton's inner city, which I just happened to live off. And the reason why they chose it was because people, and called it Immigration Street, was because people looked different, they spoke differently, they ate different food, they belonged to different religious backgrounds, whereas most people on that street would say, or did say, 
we're actually not immigrants, we've got British passports, we consider ourselves British, you're defining us as immigrants. Um, it was just that their culture was different, but they would equally consider themselves as kind of British-born and as British as the per- as David Cameron back then. Um, and it ended up being this massive national campaign. Um, and then their kind of their seven-part series turned into an hour episode. So it was a massive successful the local community. But I think it's so important to do this, and I think this has been the thread throughout this podcast to do this from the bottom up and allow local communities and individuals to define what they mean by arts and culture. And I think for, as a local authority and other organisations, I think our part of our job is to accept and recognise it, provide the infrastructure which we're trying to do despite its difficulties and take down those barriers and offer support. Mm-hmm. I think there is a slight, another side to the argument which I, I think is worth just pulling out just a little bit, which is that kind of intrinsic argument about arts and culture, and particularly this concept of with, uh, I think it's, there are now fewer people going to the Church of England on a regular basis than to football, Premier Football, which I think it's gone down to 1.2 million people or something who regularly count themselves as regular goes to the Church of England. So with the, with the kind of reduction of churches, uh, until recently with the reduction of people joining political parties, although that's somewhat shifted recently in the, in the last few years, finding a space where we can talk about... Uh, our values and our and the things that are important in our lives, uh, what are good, what's good and what's bad. That is a role that I think arts and culture can play right, whether it's Absolutely. through exhibitions or whether it's through uh, performances and so forth. And it's part, I, you know, it, to not sound too pompous, part of a civilized society is that you do. That's how you have your debate through arts and culture, rather than necessarily punching each other out over that kind of process. And I think that's. That's one of the, the, the bits that becomes really interesting, which is that if that's where arts and culture goes, which is it becomes a platform for that debate, and then people feel excluded from that debate, that's where there's a challenge. So I think that's where you could start to argue that you know, the, the, the lack of engagement from students in that debate. And certainly, as an audience member who goes to the arts and culture a lot, uh, being in an audience that is varied and diverse is a more rewarding experience because you get different responses to what's happening on stage and that therefore makes it a more interesting cultural cultural policy doesn't work uh, when large sections of the community are excluded from from, from the conversation Uh, and uh, for historical reasons that we have talked about it's no one's fault uh, that the arts council was set up just to fund the fine arts Um, but it was a policy error in retrospect that we can now see um, and I, I think the future uh, of cultural policy and arts funding is going to be um, dissolving the walls between the arts and lots of other things and perhaps returning us to the, in many respects, healthy policy environment that was created by local authorities in the late 19th century and early 20th. It's a strange, uh, it's a strange yeah, back to the, the future the, the moment. Tri- well, you know, um, policy making is kind of cyclical and, uh, and iterative, isn't it? So. Uh, it- I mean, it's quite interesting that the Arts Council is start, It's just about to... 2020 will be the Arts Council's next uh, five-year, ten-year strategy. It's a ten-year strategy. The current encapsulation of the Arts Council's uh, policy is great art for everyone. They're already beginning to be conversations at the Arts Council and they're publicly talking about changing that to great art with everyone. And I think that's quite an interesting journey that the Arts Council has gone on in terms of how 
that for everyone almost implies a sort of delivered to them and this process is actually engaged with and I think that's what we're trying to do with the Cultural Manifesto is to create that dialogue so that the, we are all uh, playing a part in the creation, curation of the art that takes place in a city. That doesn't mean to say that we all programme the galleries or we all programme the theatres, but that we play a part in the conversation yeah. about what takes place in our city so that we can feel that we've had a voice towards it and, it, and that we are part of that conversation. So great art with everyone, I, I haven't heard of it, but that's a, that, that's a wonderful aspiration. Mm. The manifesto, which I think got in first, is a mechanism uh, that enables great art with everyone actually to happen. Now, we've got a lot of work to do to, uh, to launch the manifesto and, to, and perhaps to facilitate all the conversations. There'll have to be dozens or hundreds of them that will you know, find out what, what people want, uh, but the mechanism exists. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good opportunity to say that you can find links in the sleeve notes to the cultural uh, manifesto to be able to review and become involved in the process there as well. Uh, similarly, there's links to Catherine's uh, dissertation for those of you that want to wade through some, uh, some some serious content and there'll be an executive summary in there as well. So there we have it. Thanks to my guests for their contribution to this episode. You can find more information about future episodes, links to the cultural manifesto, more information about Studio 144, and of course Catherine's dissertation with links in the in the sleeve notes. I hope you've enjoyed the programme. Look forward to you tuning in next time.